In this interview, we chat with Dana Carbinder. Now, Dana is the author of many low-carb books, including How I Gave Up My Low-Fat Diet and Lost 40 Pounds, 500 Low-Carb Recipes, 200 Low-Carb Slow Cooker Recipes, the Every Calorie Counts Cookbook, and many more. Yet Dana is not one of those theory type of writers. She walks the talk, and it's not widely known that she was once a sugar-addicted kid whose addiction caused her to grow to over 200 pounds, which for her height meant that she was severely overweight. But that, of course, is all in the past. Dana embraced the healthy eating habits that come with the low-carb lifestyle and has seen many of the health issues that once troubled her go away. So let's join Alan and Dana now as she reveals many of the ways that a low-carb lifestyle has helped her that may well help you as well. Good morning, Dana, and welcome to the Low Carb Paleo Show. Thanks for having me. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Alan. How are you today? I am fine. Everybody's happy and good-looking? Oh, yes. Good-looking, definitely. Good-looking, okay. You're Dana, you're nationally syndicated columnist and the founder of Hold the Toast Press and also the author of multiple books and you mentioned 2500 recipes, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean okay. I have quite a large database of recipes but it's, I don't think it's quite that big. Um, and um, your latest book is Cup Smart Grain-Free Sugar-Free Living Cookbook but before we get to the book can you give us a little background about yourself and what you've done uh, so far? Well, uh, I started writing in 1998, I think it was. I had gone low carb in 1995, and a friend of mine who ran a local health club saw what happened to me and asked me to come teach about low carb at her health club. And I gave a one hour opening speech for free. People could, you know, just open to the public. And the local cable access television station sent a camera, which was fine with me. I'm not afraid of cameras. The next thing I knew, I was the most popular show in Bloomington, Indiana cable access history. I beat out the Clinton Chronicles for that honor. And they were showing my lecture five, six times a week from public demand. And it became very, very obvious very quickly that there was huge public appetite for this information. That, you know, I I kept getting stopped every time I went out of the house because all of a sudden I was getting recognized every time I went out of the house. A little intimidating that. And people had a million questions. So I thought, I can write this down. I know how to write. I can write this down. And I wrote my first book, How I Gave Up My Low-Fat Diet and Lost 40 Pounds. And my husband, bless his heart, put up $3,000 of his money to print a 1,000 paperback copies, which we started to sell mail order, you know, and through Amazon and stuff. We went through 13,000 copies of a self-published book. And all of a sudden, I had a publisher. You know, you sell 13,000 copies of a self-published book, publishers sit up and take attention. And I was going to give them a revised, expanded edition of that book, uh, at the beginning of 2002, when I, I owed it to them January 2nd, 2002. But in November 2001, they called me up and said, wait, no, we want a cookbook first. You've got 500 recipes, right? And I said, I don't think so. Let me count. And 
I had somewhere in the neighborhood of 300, and they said, well, you can have 200 more by March. So I spent the winter of 0102 proving you can gain weight on a low-carb diet. All you have to do is cook and eat five new things a day. You can do it. But I'm glad I did that because that book sold half a million copies and really kicked off my career. And that's how I ended up a syndicated columnist because that was led into the 2003, what I call the Atkins boom of 2003. And uh, United Media was looking for somebody to write about low carb and I was the obvious choice because I was the best selling cookbook author. And I'm really grateful for that experience. United Media was great to me. Um, you know, once the boom was over, we figured the whole thing wasn't worth it anymore. But among other things, it made me a much better writer. It really did. Um, and and again, they, everybody at United Media was very, very nice to me. But of course, you write one best-selling cookbook, and oddly enough, they want you to write some more. So during the Atkins boom, I literally turned in half a dozen manuscripts in 18 months, which I'm pretty sure isn't possible. But I did it anyway because they kept calling me up and saying, we'll give you more money if you can write another book. And I'd be like, okay. So then things slowed down a bit. But, but again, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, low carb is, has been vindicated. I never, I never swayed. You know, I never was like, oh, low carb is dead. I was like, no, the science is with me. And anyway, I don't want to weigh 200 pounds again. I tried low fat. I tried whole grains. I tried, you know, all of that, and it, it was a disaster for me, so I'm not going back. And I just, you know, sat out the, the lean years and kept writing, and now all of a sudden it's, uh, it's all caught up with us. Dr. Atkins uh, apparently always said regarding people who would say, oh, you know, your diet is killing people, this is ridiculous, whatever, yeah, someday they'll catch up to me. And I feel like they did. And by the way, the, the sugar-free, grain-free cookbook is not my latest, although it's very good and you want to buy it. This would be the latest right here. That is 200 low-carb, high-fat recipes specifically. There's been a lot of interesting ketogenic diets lately, and I know I do better, have done better, as I told you, since I increased my fat intake. So I thought it was time for a cookbook that was not only low-carb but very deliberately high fat. Right. So picking up on that, uh, just for the sake of argument, what what do you have against a uh, low-fat diet? Uh, they made me fat and sick and hungry all the time and with high blood pressure. Uh, it didn't work. Uh, and there's really, there's just, just no research there. It was a neat supposition. It was a very easy jump from, well, we see somewhat higher rates of heart disease in people who have really, really, really high cholesterol, so obviously all cholesterol must be bad and causing heart disease and blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, you got Ansel Keys with his seven country study. I'm sure you're aware of the seven country study? Yeah. Where Ansel, Dr. Ansel Keys supposedly proved that eating saturated fat was causing heart disease but actually he had data from 22 countries, and if you included all 22 countries, you had no pattern at all. Um, yeah. but, but really the whole thing was based on no hard scientific data whatsoever. But for me, the bottom line is, I got interested in nutrition when I was 19. 
I read my first nutrition book at 19 after having been a sugar-addicted kid who literally stole fives and tens and twenties out of her mom and dad's wallets to support a really pathological sugar habit. And, um, and not so coincidentally also having seen a psychiatrist from the time, or psychologist from the time I was 11, 10 or 11 years old. My first book on nutrition was about the psychiatric effects of nutrition, and I recognized myself in a list of, there was a list of 47 symptoms of reactive hypoglycemia, hypoglycemia from eating too much sugar, uh, that most people would think of as signs of emotional problems. I had 40 of them. And I thought to myself, hmm, I, I wonder if this could be my problem here. So I stopped eating sugar and white flour. I did not go low carb, but it even just giving up sugar and white flour, and of course having a 19-year-old body, which helps everything, uh, I lost a bunch of weight and felt hugely better, mood was better, energy was better, everything was better, but as the low-fat thing set in in the 80s and we were all told that our best possible dinner was pasta salad with fat-free mayonnaise or a baked potato with nothing on it or whatever, I fell for it. And it was like telling, you know, it was kind of like telling an alcoholic his best dinner was a six-pack and a shot, um, because I, you know, I had a history of carb addiction, and so I, I did it, and I just got fatter and fatter and sicker and sicker. People tell me, well, you have to eat good carbs, and I'm like, no, you don't understand. When I went low carb, I had not bought a loaf of white bread in 15 years. You know, I, I was eating whole wheat pasta and whole grain bread and you know, all that stuff, and I whole grained and beamed my way up to 200 pounds at five foot two with high blood pressure and really, really scary energy swings. And it terrified me because I was doing what they told me, they, the ubiquitous they, told me should make me well, should make me slim and healthy and energetic, and I was getting fatter and sicker by the day. So you can't convince me that a low-fat diet is good for me that there are some people in the world for whom it is good, you know, that's a possibility. We're all different. I doubt it's really ideal for much of anybody, but I'm open to the possibility. But for me, for me, a low-fat diet based on whole grains and beans was a disaster. It was just a disaster. Right, and so did your um, psychological issues uh, resurface then? Uh, it turns out, I found out as I pour, pour myself another cup of tea, my psychological issues, uh, once again, and energy issues both, mood and energy improved a lot when I went low carb um, in 1995. In fact, that is the thing that kept me going through plateaus and all of that, and the fact that I'm still not what anybody would consider a really skinny girl. I'm never, I, you can't see it because I'm sitting down, but I'm built very much like a fire hybrid. I am short and stocky with a very short waist and a very big rib cage, and I'm just never going to be a size two. It's not going to happen. You could put me in a concentration camp, and it wouldn't happen. So, um, but but what has kept me going all along is the dramatic improvement in how I feel. However, four years ago, I was at the age of 52, finally diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. And that turns out to be the root of all of it. The, the mood problems, the addictive problems, because along with the sugar, I used to be a smoker. Um, I, uh, I can say this, I can say this publicly because um, it's way past the statute of limitations, but 
I flunked out of college by smoking way too much marijuana. We, we, I, was in, I was doing my best to smoke all the marijuana in the United States. Uh, I did not achieve that, but I, I did my best. Um, but that was for medical reasons, right? Well, it, it turns out, yes, I was self-medicating. I was self-medicating. My psychiatrist is quite certain that all of that, the cigarettes, the sugar, the, uh, I used to drink 12 to 18 cans of Diet Cola a day. Just that tendency to addictiveness is, is absolutely part of the picture of attention deficit disorder. And so is problem, so are problems with both depression and sleep. So um, while diet has dramatically improved that, uh, I do have underlying you know, inborn neurological stuff. Right, so, right. But four or five years ago is when deciding to link grains and especially wheat to psychological problems and, yeah. and, and mood disorders. And, and so that's when you started to put the two together? Uh, no, I knew, I mean, I knew when I went low carb that I felt hugely better. But yeah, four, four years ago was it that Wheat Belly came out? I read Wheat Belly by William Davis. Um, right. And again, if you haven't interviewed Dr. Davis, you really shouldn't. He's, he's a great guy. Um, and that was it. I gave up wheat right then. I had, until then, occasionally eaten low-carb bread or low-carb tortillas. Not a lot. You know, I could buy a, a, a three or four loaves of, of low-carb bread. I would mail order it, and it would stay in my freezer for a year, slowly disappearing. And the low-carb tortillas by La Tortilla Factory, I would use now and then. But I just coincidentally not really deliberately, but just didn't eat any low-carb bread or tortillas for about eight months. And then I came up with a recipe for one of my books, uh, my slow cooker book, that I needed uh, something to wrap it in. It was a, a, like a mushu recipe, and I didn't have a mushu pancake, obviously, so I used the La Tortilla Factory tortillas, and I was hung over for two days. I felt like grim death for two days. And I was like, okay, maybe I don't like weed anymore. Um, and then I read Wheat Belly, and that was that, and I, I went gluten-free. But just recently, I read David Perlmutter's Grain Brain, and that was particularly interesting to me, too, because it turns out that those of us with ADD do have a higher risk of dementia, and boy, I'd really like to avoid that. So uh, I have added some more supplements uh, per David Perlmutter's recommendations, in particular uh, I have dramatically increased my intake of cod liver oil from the DHA and uh, added some alpha lipoic acid and, and some stuff like that. And I do feel that my mood is, is better from that as well. Good. Do you want to go back to the book? Uh, can, what can you tell us about CosMart Grain-Free, Sugar-Free Living Cookbook? Oh, uh, well, that book um, I, I wrote because I came up with that idea because I think that the the grain-free movement is gathering steam, and yet, and I'm sure you know this, people have a hard time completely walking away from things they're familiar with their whole lives. And I've heard people refer to, I, I consider um, low-carb baked goods uh, and uh, sweets and stuff, to a large degree I consider them bridge foods, things that help you make the transition, but frankly, I make sugar-free, grain-free, baked goods for myself quite infrequently. 
I really, I really don't do it a lot except when I'm writing cookbooks. But for many, many people, the initial idea of saying, okay, I'm just never going to have a cake again, you know, okay, I'm never going to have a cookie again, is daunting. And they will not even consider it. Whereas if you can say, no, you know, keep in mind that pretty soon you may not care so much, but when you do, here, you can have these really yummy things. That lets people say, oh, okay, I can do this. And that's important. And I've heard people refer to low-carb, sugar-free, grain-free, whatever, um, candies, cookies, uh, breads, whatever, as being like candy cigarettes. Remember candy cigarettes? I'm old enough to remember candy cigarettes. But I don't think that's true. I would compare them more to um, Nicorette gum. You know? If Nicorette gum is what it takes to keep you from smoking, I say use it. And if knowing that when your birthday rolls around, you can have a sugar-free cake, a sugar-free grain-free cake is what lets you go low-carb or grain-free, then I say, I'm all for it. You know, uh, if knowing that you can have a dessert for your kids, you know, when they get home from school, some cookies for your kids when they get home from school is what lets you say, okay, yeah, we're not giving the kids lucky charms anymore. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Whatever it takes. Okay. So you wrote this book with um, Caitlin Weeks, Caitlin and um, I understand she's um, she's the kind of the paleo side of things and you're yes. the local. Uh, how did you work together? Yeah. How did you put this book together? Well, we had to decide on, we, we didn't work together in terms of like getting together in the kitchen at all. She cooked her recipes, I cooked mine. Um, and we each wrote up our own recipes. But we had to agree on what our terms were. I think a lot, when I write cookbooks, I think a lot in terms of game rules. I think of game rules, you know. When I wrote, wrote a, a 15 minute low carb cookbook, my game rules were it had to be low carb and it had to be done in 15 minutes or less including prep time. Those were the game rules. Uh, right now I'm writing a five ingredient or less paleo cookbook. And so, you know, the, what are the game rules? The game rules are it has to be paleo now and we should get into that because the definition of paleo is very, very fluid. And I, I find it concerns me some. But, but the game rules for this book, we had to agree what sweeteners are allowed. You know, we weren't using artificial sweeteners. Uh, Caitlin likes to use xylitol because birch xylitol is uh, not GMO. I prefer erythritol for a few reasons. First of all, it is less absorbed in the gut than xylitol and therefore has a lower carbohydrate impact on the body. Second of all, um, xylitol does not have the gut issues that xylitol often does. Oh, sorry, erythritol does not have the gut issues that xylitol often does. But also because xylitol is profoundly toxic to dogs. And I have three. And if one of my best friends got a hold of a cookie and died, I would never ever forgive myself. So uh, I would like to say um, there is a non-GMO erythritol available through Amazon.com where you can buy, I think, everything. I think you can buy everything through Amazon.com. You can try to buy an elephant through Amazon.com. You could. Um, but you can get non-GMO erythritol. 
Um, but we had to decide what counts, you know, what's okay. So that was really the, the major issue. And then, of course, we had to keep in touch about who was working on what kind of recipe so we didn't duplicate one another's efforts. Um, and that was pretty much it. That was pretty much it. Um, I focus, again, more on low-carb, although for this book I did um, you know, a few more carbs than I would eat on a daily basis because that wasn't the main focus. Right, right. So going back to paleo, what is your take on paleo then? First of all, I think we should all admit that virtually nobody is really eating a paleolithic diet. Nobody. Nobody. Unless you are hunting all your meat and gathering all of your vegetable foods locally in season, you are not eating a paleo diet. There is nothing paleo about eating a banana in southern Indiana. There is nothing paleo about, you know, drinking bulletproof coffee, period. So, so we have to decide what we mean by paleo, you know. For me, the, the things that come to mind, first of all, uh, I think Ray Audette, who wrote Neanderthal back in the 90s, uh, had it right when he said that if something can't be, if, if you couldn't gather it with only a sharp stick and a rock and eat it raw, it ain't food. Okay? <laughs> and that, if you couldn't eat it raw. Now, he doesn't suggest you should eat everything raw, just that you shouldn't eat anything that, you, that would be toxic if you ate it raw. For instance, grains and beans, toxic. If you eat them raw, they'll give you a heck of a bellyache. Um, uh, white potatoes will also give you a bellyache if you eat them raw. Um, cashews, of course, as they come off the tree, have the same chemical as poison ivy. The, the so-called raw cashews you see in the grocery store and the health food store around here um, are same not raw. They've been the... seen. Same problem with the nightshades. Yeah. Well, you, you, you can, and do I do, eat tomatoes and peppers raw. So apparently they are not toxic to me. I know people who do have to forego the nightshades, but I eat them and I don't have any arthritis, and I've abused the heck out of my hands over 30 years as a deep tissue massage therapist, because that's my other gig, and I'm a deep tissue massage therapist. But... Um, but, uh, you know, you can eat some of the nightshades raw. Uh, another thing that I find interesting is the devotion to almond milk. A lot of people in the paleo community are using almond milk. Most of the almond milk I see in the store um, has, is highly processed and has all sorts of interesting ingredients on the label. And I don't know why that's more paleo than grass-fed cow's milk. Um, I, I think that um, I, I think primal makes more sense to me than strict paleo without dairy unless you have specific issues with dairy and obviously some people do right. but I would bet that our caveman hunter-gatherer ancestors were eating cheese and I'll tell you why you kill a baby ruminant animal a suckling ruminant animal it will have cheese curds in its stomach and I would be willing to bet our ancestors didn't throw that away. So my guess is that cheese of some kind has been on the human menu forever. Forever. Now, right. probably not probably not a good Stilton. Damn it. But 
Again, I don't understand the, the, um, the push for almond milk rather than dairy well, milk. I, I don't know. So I've also seen some people using tapioca, which is toxic as it grows. Let me, let me answer that question for you from my point of view. I am uh, lactose intolerant, so oh, I cannot right drink processed milk. Um, so I, you know, I can't drink soybean milk because I don't just like the idea with the phytoestrogens and everything. Yeah, plus yeah, yeah. a lot of this, plus yeah, a lot of this is genetically engineered. But uh, I do eat cheese, and I try to eat raw cheese as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But I haven't found a local raw milk source. I'm I'm curious to test raw milk on myself to see if it would still give me the same digestive problems. So basically, I sure. stay away from regular commercial milk because it's uh, homogenized, pasteurized, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I would be curious to to taste raw milk to see if it does any difference for me. But as far as cheese, I eat cheese. As long mm -hmm. as they're fermented and aged, uh, I have no problem with it. And and I think that's a sensible point of view. Um, I I come again from uh, largely British ancestors and uh, some Dutch, and of course both uh, both cultures have a very long history of herding and dairying. And I think to some degree lactose tolerance is a function of genetics and of who your ancestors were. Um, so, because obviously people who did better in a culture like that, um, you know, were more likely to survive and reproduce. Um, so I think the fact that I have no problems with dairy. Now, I don't, you know, use a lot of milk because milk is 12 grams carbohydrate a cup. So I think it's fairly benign. If you are not lactose intolerant, I think of the sugars, lactose is one of the more benign easier on the blood sugar, but on the other hand, um, my body says it's sugar and says the hell with it. Um, I do use heavy whipping cream, I do use cheese, and you know, that just makes sense to me. I, I, just, I just think it's interesting the degree to which people try to get things into the paleo fold, so to speak, based on their own preferences and that's okay everybody's allowed to have preferences but it doesn't square for me with the sometimes almost religious sentiment I see a particular on Facebook uh, people saying oh you know uh, I couldn't possibly eat this or that or the other thing because you know it's it's evil it's bad it's and, and there does seem like there's this religious fervor. There's also, of course, the whole anti-vax mo movement, um, which I personally think is wrong-headed. You know, all you have to do is see one person who had polio as a child, and you decide you're pretty glad you had your polio vaccine. But I, I do think that there's a lot of, a lot of um, fudging, <laughs> so to speak. And I find it, I find it harder to write paleo books because there's no clear definition. With a, when I write low-carb books, there's one metric. How many grams of carbohydrate are in a spain? How many grams of carbohydrate are in a dish, you know? Um, and more and more and more, when I write low-carb recipes, they are also closer to paleo because there are things that I used to use in recipes that I don't use anymore. I don't use soy powder in recipes anymore, and I used to. So, and, and more and more I use... 
uh, a combination of stevia and erythritol to sweeten things um, rather than using Splenda. Although, again, I'm not terrified of Splenda. And that brings us, especially in the quantities I would use it, which are very small, um, which brings us to another issue of uh, it, what's paleo, what's not. And that is the concentration of a given element in the diet. I have seen a lot of paleo recipes that are very heavy on the sugar in the form of honey. And people seem to think, oh, well, it's honey, so it's paleo, so it's okay for me. And our ancestors didn't find a bee tree every day. Some of them didn't find a bee tree at all because, of course, bees are not indigenous to every part of the world. Bees are not indigenous to the Americas, among other things. Um, but once they did find a bee tree, hunter-gatherers didn't have any way to gather and store that honey. Until you started making pottery, you didn't have a pot to put it in. <laughs> you know, so you didn't like drain the bee tree and bring the honey back to the cave and use it or the, the tent or whatever you were living in um, and, and use it for cooking later on. You had a great big party, everybody got sick on honeycomb, and you were done. Uh, they, could, so they, that, they could probably store it in uh, animal skin or, or make a bag out of it. Can you imagine how sticky that animal skin would be? Can you imagine <laughs> trying to carry, when you're, keep in mind that most hunter-gatherers were nomadic, honey is heavy. Can you imagine trying to carry a sticky animal skin with like, you know, 20 pounds of honey in it? I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> I think it unlikely. And of course, a lot of people use maple syrup. Well, it takes 40 gallons of maple sap to make one gallon of maple syrup. And until people had some form of technology to make the vessel in which to boil down the sap, how much maple syrup were they getting? They might very well have drunk the sap. It was probably quite tasty. But it, it seems unlikely. And, and I will use make maple syrup in paleo recipes, but I won't use a lot of it. I'm not going to bake a cake, you know, with a cup of maple syrup in it, because I don't think that's paleo. I just don't. I just don't. So, so there is that question of concentration as well. And of course, people are always coming up with excuses to eat sugar. They but just yeah, like you said earlier, we can't completely ignore uh, I mean, if you take the 80, 20 percent, I mean, if 20 percent is the allowed cheating food, then for some people, uh, they will cheat with sugar or any kind of sweet, whether it's agave syrup or honey or uh, maple oh, syrup. Don't even get me started on agave. <laughs> okay, I won't, but... That stuff's a Honey is qualified technically as a paleo ingredient. Technically, uh, honey qualifies because it's coming from animal, and it's yeah. "quote unquote" natural. So, yeah. uh, but on the other hand, um, you're right. Agave is a highly processed product, of a, um, unless you stick to certified organic agave. But uh -uh. that's a whole different it, discussion. Uh, you know, agave nectar is made exactly the same way they make high fructose corn syrup. They just make it from agave instead. You don't, you don't, it's not like you tap an agave plant and then boil it down. They take fructooligosaccharides out of the agave plant and they split it with enzymes, which is exactly how they get corn, corn syrup. They take cornstarch and they split it with enzymes into the component sugars. So agave nectar, there's no way to get it outside of a factory. Okay. I, don't care if you grow it, I don't care if you grow it organically or not. 
So we agree Agave is not paleo. So moving <laughs> along, uh, what other projects are you currently involved with? I am currently writing, like I said, a, a five ingredient or less paleo cookbook, uh, uh -huh. which is a really interesting. You're a chef. How do you like the whole five ingredient or less thing? I much prefer the 15 minutes or less. Because uh, either way works for me because I'm a chef and I worked in kitchen for 45 years when I get home I don't want to cook and so huh? whatever whatever I cook for myself has to be very very simple okay because um, if I can't prepare it for 10-15 minutes or less then I'm not I'm not going to do it because I don't want to spend any more time in the kitchen okay because I've already um, spent the whole day on it so yeah and I, I find myself getting irritated having to choose between garlic or onions in a recipe, you know. Um, but people want it, and I don't write cookbooks for me. I write cookbooks for them. Uh, and the other thing I just signed on for is uh, I have worked in the past with uh, Dr. Rob Thompson, who wrote The Glycemic Load Diet, and I provided recipes for that and uh, for another one of his books. So we're working together on a book for, about insulin resistance, and I will be providing recipes for that. Uh, so yeah. at this point, I owe my publisher 275 recipes by next April. Wow. <laughs> You're a busy lady. Uh, I cook a lot, yeah. I cook a lot. Um, so, and the hardest so, part, I have to tell you, was not all that cooking. The hardest part is not all that cooking or all that grocery shopping or all that dishwashing or anything like that. The hardest part is eating up all the damn leftovers with only two people in the house. <laughs> well, you have dogs to help you, right? That It is true. I also have chickens. <laughs> I have only found one thing chickens won't. Yeah, I have uh, 30-some chickens in my yard. Uh, I live, you know, like I said, in Bloomington, Indiana, so we have a 10-acre yard, and we're outside the city, so we can have all the chickens we want. And uh, and so and of course we like eggs, eggs are good. So yeah. we have uh, we have all those chickens and chickens perform the wonderful magic trick of turning old food into new food. It's a really cool trick. Um, yeah. They also turn ticks into food. Have you run across ticks in Austin? Have you come to fear the American creature known as the tick? Not in Austin. It's too hot in here for that, right? Okay. I, I'm not familiar with ticks at all. I know Be it's grateful. more of a northern. Yeah. I've I've had Lyme disease from a tick bite. So okay. uh, I really I really would prefer not to do that again. Um so uh ticks scare me and they're evil and bad and they should all die. So the fact that my chickens will eat ticks and turn them into eggs uh makes me very, very happy. Makes me very so happy. It's tick Take flavored eggs. Really? No, they're egg flavored eggs. Uh, I've, I've found that whatever I feed my chickens, the eggs come out tasting like eggs. I have only found one thing chickens will not eat, by the way, and that's mushrooms. Oh, okay. Maybe they have some instinctive sense that some mushrooms are poisonous. How do you feel about, speaking of which, how do you feel about mushrooms as a paleo food? I would consider them paleo because I figure our ancestors figured out pretty rapidly what things in their environment were poisonous and what things were not. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. If, uh, uh, mushrooms are definitely, by definition, paleo. Okay. Uh, you know, um, gathering. Yeah. Gathering. Yeah. Part. I just you wonder. You wonder how many people died before they figured out which ones were edible and which ones were not. 
<laughs> well, it's part of natural selection, right? I, I guess. We, by the way, we get chanterelles growing in my backyard. Oh, nice. Yeah. You're lucky. Yeah, yeah. And so the good thing is the chicken are not eating them. That's right. Well, they don't go back in the woods a lot anyway. The chanterelles grow out in the woods, whereas the chickens run around the lawn. But, uh, but yeah, we, uh, we get chanterelles and we get um, all kinds of... There are some interesting wild foods around here. In fact, I should go today. We, get, we have deer everywhere here. And I don't hunt, and my husband hasn't, although he's thinking about it. But the local deer processor will let me have all the free deer bones I want, because otherwise they have to pay a, a waste company to haul them away. And right. so I, all winter long, I feed my dogs on free venison, but they also invariably give me chunks of meat big enough to cook for myself. And it is fresh. That's good. So, that's great. So that's nice. Yeah, so... Uh, so there, there you go, your paleo. So from our discussion, it seems like you're obviously a, a big supporter of low-carb. Do you feel that the paleo diet will be around uh, 10 years from now, or is it a fan? I think that the two are um, close enough that each will inform the other and that some hybrid of them will arise. I don't think that the idea that we should probably be eating the foods on which we evolved will go away. I don't think that idea will go away. And I don't think that the idea that carbohydrate restriction is beneficial, especially for those of us who naturally tend to obesity, will go away either. So I think what we are seeing is that the two are starting to meld and hybridize. I can tell you that every every time I have published a recipe using Splenda in the last, oh, you know, six or seven years, somebody will scold me. Somebody will scold me. So, um, I'll, be, I'll be one of them. Okay. Um, you, you know, and, and although I also get scolded for using Stevia I just don't scold it for using erythrite, you know, sugar alcohol. I, it, 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 the sweetener wars are the bane of my existence because there is no sweetener <laughs> I can use that somebody won't object to. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, I, as you said, some sweet flavor is just part of cooking. It is, you know. And I again, I don't do a lot of desserts, but I do salad dressings and I do marinades and I do, you know, that kind of thing and a sweet note is part of that. You know, I did a right. um, a coffee rub for pork yesterday, and that had a whole tablespoon of erythritol in it. And it was quite good. Which, uh, a, a silly question popped up, but how do you create 25, say 2,500 recipes 100. without, without repeating yourself? I'm not guaranteeing that I never repeat myself. Uh, there are recipes I revisit. Uh, for instance, there is a skillet supper, very simple, uh, that has sometimes been referred to as Joe's Special or Casual Joe, as opposed to Sloppy Joe's. Uh, I just call it Joe. And it's, it's hamburgers, hamburger meat, uh, onions, a little garlic. Uh, some people have mushrooms, which is very good, and uh, spinach. And then you uh, add beaten eggs and scramble that until it's set. And it's really very good. 
And it's such an easy recipe, such a fast recipe, such an infinitely variable recipe that I think it is useful in a wide variety of situations. And I think everybody needs that kind of recipe where, yeah, I can feed the whole family on this you know, pound of hamburger meat. And uh, so uh, I have varied, had variations of that in, I think, three books. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of what I do is start with other people's ideas. And I'm sure you've done this too. Um, I'll, I, I take notes. When I'm in a restaurant, <laughs> I'll sit there and take notes. Oh, yeah. This is seasoned with that, with this too. Okay, I'll, I, I could do something with that. You know, my ever, I, I recently uh, updated my operating system on my iPhone and lost my Evernote, which had months and months and months of recipe notes in it. And I was in a panic because I was like, what am I going to do? So we went to the nice Apple people here in town and they found my Evernote for me with all my notes in it. But I also, I have a huge collection of cookbooks. I have, I literally have a cookbook room in my house. It's a small room, but it's still a lot of damn cookbooks. And I will go through other people's cookbooks going, oh, oh, that's interesting. You know, now I can take out the rice and obviously I don't want to use the sugar, but that's a really interesting combination of flavors. I bet I could make a, I bet I could make a salad out of that, you know, or whatever. And, and so that's what I do a lot of, is starting with other people's recipes, whacking out huge chunks of carbohydrate, or often simplifying things, you know, recipes that would take forever to cook, I'll, I'll make them quicker, or things that, um, again, would take forever to cook, I'll do them in a slow, turn them into a slow cooker recipe. Um, I do a lot of that. I also just simplify, because my, most cookbooks are purchased by foodies, by people who really like to cook, people who understand food. I have known all along that this is not necessarily true of a lot of the people who buy my cookbooks. A lot of the people who buy my cookbooks were living on Kraft macaroni and cheese and frozen pizza like the rest of the country up until the very day they realized what they were eating was killing them. Right. And right. if I tell them to buy Verjuice, is that the right way to pronounce that? V-E-R-J-U-I-C-E. Okay, I speak no French. I speak passable Spanish, but no French. If I tell them to use that, they are going to get glassy-eyed and just move on to the next recipe. I need to use ingredients they know. My rule is if I have to go to more than two stores in Bloomington, Indiana to find an ingredient, I don't use it unless I can tell people where to find it on Amazon.com. I used to just say if I can't get it in Bloomington, I don't use it. Because, you know, town of 75,000 in southern Indiana seems like a pretty good middle-of-the-road standard for what would be available. Less than what would be available in New York City, but more than what would be available in some little town of 200. Um, but now if, if an ingredient is easily available through Amazon.com, I feel free to tell people, yeah, you can get it through Amazon. Um, a quick question. Um, really, going back to your low-carb, high-fat um, yes. recipes and uh, so on. In your experience, how much fat do you think people should be having to make their diet worthwhile on a low-carb scheme? I can't. People always ask me how many grams of carbohydrates should I eat, and I always say, how the heck should I know? Um, 
you know, because it is individual. But I, I shoot for over 80% of my calories from fat. Different people, and I've heard from people who really need to, other people who really need to keep it that high. And certainly if you want to be in ketosis, a good strong ketosis to suppress appetite and clear-headedness and steady energy and all that, um, then you need to stay probably above 70%. And that's what I've shot for in the recipes in this book. There are a few recipes that are lower than that just because I thought, this is a really good recipe and they're probably going to eat a nice oily salad with that anyway or whatever. I have cracker recipes in there and I figure people are probably going to eat crackers with a dip or cheese or butter or something else that would add fat. Um, but uh, as for fat, I have heard from people who do better if they cut it back to, you know, 65% of calories from fat. I think the important thing is to not be afraid of fat, to not deliberately choose the boneless, skinless chicken breast and how that ever got a reputation as a whole food. I have no idea. <laughs> Nothing whole about it. Um, all my chickens have bones and skin. It's amazing. I think that uh, you know, eating your chicken with the skin, eating the fat on your steak, uh, eating, please, please eating the yolks of your eggs, which are not only the tastiest part, but where all the vitamins and antioxidants are. The, the white of the egg is pretty much pure protein and no vitamins or antioxidants. But, but to not be afraid of fat, to not be afraid to put butter on your vegetables, to not be afraid to put oil on your salad, to stop using, God forbid, fat-free ranch dressing, which is just spicy corn syrup anyway. Um, it, it is uh, good to know that you absorb more of the antioxidants from the vegetables uh, that you eat if you eat them with fat. Um, so I think that's the important thing. And if you are hungry on your low-carb diet, or if you know you're staying under you know, 20, 30 grams a day, and your blood sugar is still running a little high, consider cutting back on the protein and eating more fat. Well, I'm conscious of your time, Dana, so uh, I know you said you've got power appointments, so I guess we better let you go, even though it's been a fascinating chat with you. It's been fun. Uh, thank you again, Dana, for being on the Low Carb Paleo Show, and as we say in thank Texas, you. a votre santé, yo. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you again. Have a good day. <laughs>